At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. Today, I'm speaking with recipe developer, video and podcast host, and best-selling cookbook author, Rick Martinez. I'm so excited to speak to Rick because there are few people I can think of who turned the lemon of the pandemic into lemonade quite as well as he did. After traveling through every region of Mexico to better understand the cultures and cuisines, he came out with a gorgeous, deeply researched, and very personal cookbook that is Mi Cocina. And in the process, he had fallen so in love with Mazatlan that he decided to stay. We will talk so much more about all of that. And since Rick also has a deliciously smart, simple recipe in the next Genius Cookbook, Simply Genius, which will be out next week, I was lucky to have the chance to hear more from Rick about that recipe, too. But first, we talk about how Rick first got introduced to the kitchen and the origin of his voracious sweet tooth. When I was little, I was probably like three or four years old. My mom would pick me up from daycare and we would go home. She would go to her bedroom and change clothes and I would go to the kitchen. I would pull a chair out from the dining room, push it up against the stove and I would stand there and I would wait until she came um, back into the kitchen and we would cook together. And I would just stand there and and she would tell me, you know, stir this pot or move this around. And and I was her little sous chef standing on this chair. And it's just such a powerful memory. And that just being a part of, you know, our our almost daily routine. And that just sort of began my love affair with food and cooking. Do you have a sense of what her motivation for that was? Like, do you think she was trying to teach you to cook in those moments or just trying to kind of like keep you entertained or have some help? I assume that I probably expressed a strong interest in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think she probably she would have you know said here, <laughs> stir this pot if I if I wasn't. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. sure, you know, if I had said I was going to go ride my bike or go play outside. I think she would have been fine with that too. I just feel like, you know, I wanted to be with her and, and I just always loved, I loved food and I loved cooking. I loved being in the kitchen. I love that you remember it to this day, even when you were so young. Yeah. I have a three-year-old and I, I hope that she remembers some of the things that we try to do together in the kitchen. But if nothing else, it's like it's setting the foundation. I mean, were you doing that with her kind of like when did you graduate from the chair, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, once I got tall enough to, to actually see into a pot. Um, <laughs> but 
I don't remember like doing other things. Like I don't remember like helping prep and I don't, I certainly didn't, I don't think I was allowed to use a knife, but I don't know. I got away with a lot. Like I, I had this, <laughs> I remember, I guess later on in, in kindergarten and first grade, there was a, uh, this girl in my class that her mother used to throw these school Christmas parties. And I just remember like her house was complete, like one of those insane houses where there's a Christmas tree in every bedroom and there's like, you know, a fake Santa Claus sleeping in the guest bed and you know, that kind of <laughs> sitch. Um, and she made these amazing popcorn balls. And I just remember like as a first grader, like just obsessing over these popcorn balls and wanting to learn how to make them. And I think my mother and I made them once together. And then somehow I, I don't know, like either they let me or I just decided I was going to make them on my own. And I did. It just seems really bizarre to me now that like anybody would let a child make candy (laughs) (laughs) and and then like make popcorn, shape popcorn balls with hot candy. But I did. And I went through like a, a, a popcorn ball phase and then later it got into, it morphed into caramel corn and i remember making like we would watch movies together as a family and i'm like i'm gonna go make some caramel popcorn (laughs) i don't know i don't know if you tell me is that odd or is that normal nothing is odd and to me it sounds so both empowering and bonding for you and your family i mean the (laughs) there is sort of also the angle of like when you teach a kid to make caramel popcorn you're sort of giving them the keys to the Candyland Castle. <laughs> that is very true. So there is that yeah. other element. <laughs> <laughs> that is also true. Let's talk more about your book, Mikosina, which you spent, and I hope I get these numbers right, 564 days traveling around Mexico to research and write across 32 states and 156 cities. Did I get all of that? Yes. Right? Amazing. <laughs> the numbers are just mind boggling. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you tell us what you were looking for in your travels and how the book ended up coming together through all of that? You know, I think there were two tracks. I grew up in Texas, a Mexican-American in a Mexican-American household. We didn't assign ourselves this label, but what was assigned to us by others was that we were Mexican. And probably to some that was derogatory, Some to some it may not have been, but, you know, there was a moment where my mother and I were at the grocery store and and we were buying cornmeal and she was going to make cornbread uh, to go with this beef stew that she was making. And the woman in front of us in line was like, are you making tortillas? And I was like, what? First of all, like you don't make tortillas out of cornmeal. And secondly, why are you talking to me like that? I think there's just an, there was an assumption throughout my formative years that this is what a Mexican-American household or a Mexican household does what they eat, what they cook. And so I grew up thinking we were almost, you know, the poster family for a Mexican family. And I just assumed that everybody in Mexico ate like us, that celebrated the same holidays that we celebrated in the same way that we celebrated. And when I actually was old enough to travel into the interior of Mexico in my early 20s, I remember thinking, first of all, no one looks like me, you know, and that was kind of shocking. They didn't look like my family and they weren't eating the foods that we ate. In fact, the food was nothing like what I grew up with, things that I'd never even heard of before. And and I remember calling my mom from Mexico City, just like, I don't I don't understand. Like, what what is this? What is happening? And she didn't really have an explanation either. 
And I think that sort of planted the seed for, you know, I don't actually know anything about Mexico. I don't know anything about the country of my, my family's origin. My grandfather was five years old when his family moved into Texas legally and bought a farm in, in Manchac, South of Austin, and they were dairy farmers. The last time a member of my family lived in Mexico was 1910. Mm -hmm. So my knowledge, our knowledge, my family's knowledge of Mexico is over a hundred years old, you know, other than like our visits. And so it's really strange when you grow up thinking that you are something and then you go to that place and you're actually like, no, actually I'm not anything like, like the people that live here. And so, but on the other hand, I had a very deep desire and longing to understand the culture and then later on to be a part of the culture. It was very, it was almost intoxicating. I felt very comfortable in a foreign country where I know I knew no one, I felt like I belonged. I felt like a lot of the intrig- intrinsic things a part of me that maybe people thought were oddities in the U.S. were very commonplace in Mexico. And so I just always felt very comfortable. And so that was a big part of the trip was to not only understand better the culture and the cuisine, but also to understand my place in it, you know, and where I fit in. Cause I still didn't really have a good understanding of where my family and our traditions and culture came from. I knew where my grandfather was born. I knew where my grandmother was born, but that's about it. I didn't know anything past that. And so to, you know, have the opportunity to explore the country and, and, you know, and see the diversity and the richness of the culture was Amazing. And also to present that to people, because I think one of the things that I, well, I know this to be true is that, you know, people love Mexican food in the United States, but the knowledge of the cuisine is limited to, you know, five or six dishes, right? So it's like enchiladas, tacos, quesadillas, nachos, burritos. And so, you know, even as a recipe developer, when someone when a, a media company asks me to develop a recipe, a Mexican recipe, it's always a variation of one of those things. And, you know, it's like, okay, five, five dishes is not the full breadth of any cuisine, let alone a country as, as large and diverse as Mexico. And so that was another reason why I wanted to expand the culinary vocabulary and, and give people other things to cook and, and, and also to, you know, to create the desire to explore the country on their own. Hey, it's Kristen. We will be back with Rick in just a moment. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. 
You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. we're back with more from Rick Martinez. Well, I realize you have an entire book that's packed with recipes and memories from those travels and much more that couldn't even fit in the book. But if you had to pick some of the most revelatory food memories from your travels to share with our listeners, do any come to mind? Oh my goodness. Wow. That's like, (laughs) that's like so hard. Um, Okay. (laughs) Gardner and Suhugo, I was fascinated by this name. So the name literally means meat in their juice. Mm. And it's a it's a very iconic dish. And you know, so I wanted to try it. And what it is, is basically it's a it's a steak that's grilled and cooked then in a salsa. And it's loaded up with with beans and bacon and and basically all of the juices from the meat, all of the juices from the salsa and the beans like come together in this like one glorious dish. And it's just, it's so good. And it's just one of those things. There's like so many things happening in it. It's like, it really is like a symphony in your mouth. There's so many different, you know, notes, smokiness, sweetness, spiciness, the creaminess of the beans. It was a very satisfying dish, not only from the flavor perspective, but then also I tasted this dish and I was like, okay, I get it. I get I get the fervor and the passion for it. So that was a that was a really nice food moment. Was that tricky to recreate back in your kitchen? No, that was actually one of the the easier ones. Uh, one of the more difficult ones was mole negro, and I actually decided not to put this recipe in the in the book. You know, so there are there are chilies that grow in you know each part of the country, and in Oaxaca, there are chilies that grow only there in that state. And are used to make a lot of the different moles. And I, I tried to make this dish, but not even I could find those chilies. You know, I live in Mexico mm-hmm. and I was going to have to order them and have them sent to me. And I thought, you know what, if if I have to order an ingredient and I live in Mexico, no one is going to be able to find it in the U.S. And I didn't want anybody to have to special order an ingredient to make this dish. I think that the reality is, is that you can never successfully recreate a dish that you've eaten in, in a foreign country because the ingredients are never going to be the same. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can spend literally hundreds of dollars ordering all of these ingredients. They're probably not going to be that fresh. They're certainly not going to be as fresh as what you would find in in the place where you originally had the dish. You'll make it and then it's it may not live up to your expectations and it may certainly not live up to the expectations that you have after you've spent a lot of money and a lot of time and energy making the thing. And frankly, I would rather you just go buy a plane ticket and visit Oaxaca and eat the mole there. Hmm. And so I decided to write a recipe for a mole that you could successfully recreate in the U S with no special equipment, no special ingredients, and then tell you in the head note, just buy your ticket and go taste the, the mole negro there. Uh-huh. 
Was that sort of the standard you had for all the recipes in the book that you wanted them to be recreatable without having to special order things? Yeah, I have made in my life many recipes that require specialty ingredients or specialty equipment. I have written recipes that require specialty ingredients and specialty equipment. But for this book, I wanted it to be really easy. You know, I what I have learned in my career as a recipe writer is that people are willing to either try a new ingredient or try a new technique in a recipe, but only one or the other, never both. And so if you want to teach a new technique, then your ingredients need to be really, really easy, simple, and accessible. I wanted people to try them. And so I wanted you to open the book and look at a recipe that it fits on one page. It's got, you know, four or five steps and, you know, maybe 10 or 15 ingredients. Um, and they're all like, you can get them at your, at the Gristides or, you know, the Safeway or, or whatever local store you have, they're going to have it. And I think then you're going to be more apt to try it. And, and I think what's more important and what I find most gratifying is that when people tag me in these recipes, they'll talk about, you know, the story that I wrote in the head note, which is like this ulichi, which is a mole blanco is from the state of Tabasco. And I'm like, never in a million years did I ever think that anybody would care enough about the recipe or what I wrote to actually play that back to me. And I've had so many people tell me that I showed your book to my grandmother and my Thea and you know, they started to cry because they never believed that their little town would ever be mentioned in a mainstream book or the dish that they ate growing up as a child that they may not have eaten in, you know, 30 years is now in print. And and now, you know, 20 year olds in, in Indiana and, and 30 year olds in New York City are making this dish. That was the end goal of this book. I wanted people to try something new. I wanted people to see the country as a country and not just like, you know, a word, right? Mexican. This is Mexican food. Mm-hmm. I wanted people to go, oh, that's from Oaxaca or that's from the Yucatan or that's from Tabasco. You know, and that's like, it's insane that, like that people are actually saying that. I don't, I don't think most American could, could say that of American cuisine. Like, oh yeah, this dish comes from Louisiana. Has obviously paid off in such a big way. I mean, it's a bestseller. New York Times and LA Times bestseller. Yeah, it's, it's, it blows my mind. I could not be more happy, more grateful, more just over the moon. There's one more recipe I wanted to ask you about, although it's not from this book. Speaking of your bowl of coffee and your, your nightly coffee ritual with your grandparents, your iced cafe de olla is in the Simply Genius cookbook, which is coming out in September. So this seemed like a really good opportunity to hear more from you about that recipe. I, you know, so it's, it's such an iconic dish in Mexico and, you know, and, and everybody has their own version of it. And I have pulled over on the side of, of highways and, and eaten, you know, these amazing at these amazing, like little roadside stands. And there's literally like a, a just a huge cauldron of coffee percolating over an open fire, you know? So I think there's a romance about it. The flavors are really incredible. All of these spices grow here in Mexico. So allspice, cloves, cinnamon, and then the citrus that is usually also a a part of it. The coffee itself grows here. 
So all of these things, like there's a terroir, you know, when you're in a particular region and all of these things grow in the same place, they just combine to make, I think they elevate the flavor of whatever dish you're creating and they almost have to go together. Like it's, I think it's actually harder to make them not go together when they all grow in the same, the same field. Mm -hmm. And so to me, you know, like it was also a tribute to, you know, one of the States or a couple of States that that grow all of these things together, Tabasco and, and Veracruz. And some of my favorite coffee in the world grows in Veracruz. Now, one thing, just because I am a, a coffee snob, I do one thing differently that uh, than is most commonly done here. Normally, all of the ingredients are boiled in one pot here, and then it, they're filtered and, and served. I'm a coffee snob, so I'm a Chemex man. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so coffee, Chemex, and then a syrup, which is also nice, too, because I think you can add the amount of flavor and sugar that you want, because a lot of times you don't have a choice. You know, the, the sugar is, is boiled with the coffee and the spices. So you just get like a, you know, it's like sweet tea, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just sweet. Um, or you're, you're beholden to the person that made it. But I think when you make the syrup, a, you can save it and, and use it, um, you know, whenever the mood strikes, but also you get to decide how much sweetness you want. And then you can like make whatever kind of coffee, whether it's an espresso or cappuccino or Chemex. If you're very wise, you'll choose Chemex. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, V60 is fine, too. It's fine. Well, I put it in the weekend fun breakfast chapter. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so perfect for if you want to have friends over or family over for a brunch and you want to kind of be a little bit show offy with your, your coffee offerings. And um, so whatever coffee you're in the, in the book, I think, um, and and in your original recipe, I believe you used cold brew, but whatever coffee you're serving to have this syrup that you've made in advance, ready to go. And then, you know, the, the drama and the excitement of pouring in the the half and half or the the coconut milk or whatever you're using just makes it feel very festive. But at the same time, having it in your fridge means that you can just, make your own customizable exactly as you want it. Cafe de Oya, like any moment you want it. And it's like re- really refreshing too. Cause like normally it's, it's served hot here, which I think is all, you know, also very delicious, but like there's something about an iced coffee when you have those flavors in it, it's surprising and just also really refreshing. Thanks for listening. And my thanks to Rick Martinez. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to also check out Borderline Salty, Rick's helpful and hilarious podcast with his friend Carla Lolly Music, which is linked in our show notes. And be sure to pick up your copy of Mi Cocina at your favorite local bookstore. This week's episode was put together by me, Kristen McGlory, executive producer Harry Sultan, and with post-production by Crutch Phrase Studios. If you have a favorite recipe for a genius regional specialty, I would love to hear about it at genius at food52.com or by tagging me on Instagram at McClorious. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes podcast, the very best thing that you can do to support us and to help other people find our show is to take a moment to leave us a five-star rating and review or just send this episode to other Rick superfans like us. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.